Welcome to University of Iowa Insights, a monthly audio magazine featuring interviews with some of the world's leading thinkers, researchers, and teachers. In the October edition of our podcast, Nicole Reel speaks with Benjamin Nugent, a student at the University of Iowa Writers Workshop, about his book, American Nerd, The Story of My People, in which Nugent explains the history of nerds and reflects on his own experiences as a nerd. Next, Tom Snee visits with Randy Bazanson, professor in the College of Law, to discuss his new book, Art and Freedom of Speech, and why the legal system is so reluctant to examine that issue. And Becky Soglin talks with Beth Hoekstedler, Education and Outreach Coordinator at University Hygienic Laboratory, who is developing an interactive game to get young people interested in careers in laboratory science and public health. My name is Benjamin Nugent. I'm the author of American Nerd, The Story of My People, and I'm an MFA candidate in fiction at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. What in your mind would be the definition of a nerd? I think there are a couple ways of defining nerd because it's such a vernacular term. It's not like a psychological diagnosis or something. So someone can get called a nerd if they just wear the wrong outfit on the first day of school and doesn't have anything to do with their mental state. On the other hand, I think it's something we usually call people who tend to really like rules and systems and even if what they're doing is play, even if it's imaginative like say a role-playing game. Tell me a little bit about your research for this book. I spent a lot of time around uh, medievalists, I spent a lot of time around video game kids. Uh, I went to like a professional video game tournament and I spent considerable amount of time tracking down and interviewing old friends. And then part of it was very library-bound, researching the origins of this concept. Uh, No one really done it before. The closest that anyone had come was a book uh, called The Second Self by an uh, MIT professor named Sherry Turkle, who tried to examine uh, the history of computers in terms of their impact on people's psychologies, and she used that to try to figure out why so many of the kids at MIT were self-loathing. Could you give us a bit of an overview of the book? The book starts out uh, talking about the history of the concept of nerdiness in chronological order, starting with the early Industrial Revolution and going into like Saturday Night Live, really recent pop culture. And then it segs into reporting on different contemporary nerd subcultures And then finally, at the end of the book, I tracked down some of my friends from junior high who were real nerds and see how their lives turned out. Did you find that they are still nerds, like once a nerd, always a nerd, or had they changed? I think they would still describe themselves as nerds, at least in some ways. Um, One of them became really active in his church and is actually somebody who gives sermons now, but still plays Dungeons and Dragons, which is sort of an interesting combination. And then the other one became an executive at a video game company, and so very much put his um, nerdy skills into play in his career. But what was interesting is that I didn't realize when we were kids together is that they both had extremely traumatic uh, family lives, and that being able to escape into these alternate worlds we created through these nerdy games we played uh, was a really important part of surviving their childhoods emotionally. So how have nerds changed over time? You said you'd study them from way back when up until present day. Well, I think 
the fact that we have a word for it now is a really huge change. We started to get the word nerd in uh, 1950. There was a Dr. Seuss book called If I Ran the Zoo, where there was a creature called a nerd. And uh, our contemporary definition uh, evolved from that. But before that, you know, one of the interesting things was there weren't many good options you had if you were a nerdy woman, especially. (laughs) If you read um, Pride and Prejudice, one of the Bennett sisters at the heart of the story, Mary Bennett, is this huge nerd, and there's really not much she can do with her life. Um, All you can really do if you're a woman in upper-middle-class British society at that point is uh, find an elegant match and try to lead a good life that way. And if you're a dork like Mary is, who's terrible at flirting, you really don't have very many options. You don't have very much control over your life. Whereas, of course, now Mary Bennett could be an engineer, for example. To learn more about this book, visit AmericanNerdBook.com. I'm Randy Bazanson. I'm a professor of law at the University of Iowa, and my book is Art and Freedom of Speech. Where does art fit in the Constitution? It's interesting that it doesn't seem to fit very clearly in the Constitution. Uh, The First Amendment talks about free speech. That's a different word than art, or at least courts have gotten confused by the difference. Uh, And as a result, uh, courts have have stayed away from being completely specific about uh, where art fits in. How is art different from other forms of communication or expression that are specifically protected in the Constitution? I think the main difference is that art, as I use the term, does not communicate a specific message. It's not like speech in a conventional sense, where I'm writing uh, to convince someone of a message or provide some information or the like, or argue a proposition. Art is that kind of aesthetic expression which does not communicate a particular idea, but instead appeals in a sensory way uh, and evokes meaning in the mind of the hearer or the viewer. And uh, that's very different from the logical, sequential speech. And finally, tell me about your notion about uh, trespassory art. There's a lot of art and and an increasing amount of art today that takes place beyond the walls of a museum or a building where art is displayed or another formal place for art. Uh, It it takes place in public spaces defined very broadly to include privately owned land as well as government land. The difficulty with much of this kind of art is that while it does no harm whatsoever and does a lot of good, I think, the law of trespass is so blunt-edged and so tough, so to speak, that an artist who projects uh, a a picture drawn on a laser on the side of a building 
can be held liable for very large damages for trespass. Even though the art projected on a building does no one any harm, and when the laser's turned off, it's no longer there. Uh, that's one example of the kind of art that I that, that is trespassory art, but I think the law needs to give it a little breathing room. Um, I don't think any of us want artists to kind of willy-nilly start filling our front yards with art, but I think there are places where art can coexist with existing property arrangements, and uh, I think we should leave room for it to do so without penalizing it either criminally uh, or uh, imposing very substantial damage awards on the person who places the art in that location. University Hygienic Laboratory staff member is here to tell us about a new way students can learn about careers in a public health laboratory. Hi, I'm Beth Hostedler, and I'm the University Hygienic Laboratory's Training and Outreach Coordinator. We're excited to offer a new DVD game called Did You See That? funded by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the Association of Public Health Laboratories. What prompted you to create this game? Public health is facing a national workforce shortage with an estimated 250,000 job vacancies by 2020. We created this game in conjunction with Iowa's Upper Midwest Public Health Training Center to attract middle school, high school, and college students to careers in the public health laboratory. So how does the game work? The game is similar to CNET in that it combines a game board and video clips. Our version features hygienic laboratory staff explaining their jobs and what drew them to a career in the public health lab. Players advance on a game board by answering questions presented in the videos. What are some of the jobs highlighted in the game? Some of the jobs highlighted include chemist, microbiologist, clinical laboratory scientist, and other careers that people may be unfamiliar with, such as limnologist, emergency response coordinator, and training and outreach coordinator, such as myself. What is a limnologist? Limnologists study water quality. They're outdoors collecting water and aquatic life samples in Iowa's rivers and streams. They bring these samples back to the lab for testing, but their job is primarily outdoors. One of our limnologists has a saying. He gets to do what his mom told him not to do when he was little, and that's play in the water, collecting bugs and fish for a living. How can students or teachers get this DVD game? The DVD game is available for free on the UHL website at uhl.uiowa.edu under training and education or teachers and school counselors can request a free hard copy by sending an email to the webmaster on our website. This is a fun interactive way for students to learn about career choices in the public health field. I hope everyone will take advantage of that. This podcast was produced by the University of Iowa Office of University Relations. For more information on our podcasts or to subscribe, visit us at news.uiowa.edu.